0: Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for our Lavender Talks in partnership with San Francisco Pride. I'm Michelle Meow, I'll serve as your moderator and host this afternoon. Today's discussion is touching base on the state of the LGBTQ movement with the next generation of LGBTQIA leaders. Today's program is brought to you by Gilead, Comcast, and San Francisco Pride's legacy partners Bud Light, Hilton San Francisco Union Square, KPIX 5, CBS Bay Area, Kaiser Permanente, Genentech, GLBT Historical Society, KBCW-TV, Park 55, San Francisco, Smirnoff, Recology, and T-Mobile. And now I'm very, very pleased to introduce you to our incredible panelists. Uh, We have Fausto Cardenas, who is the Queering Democracy Community Organizer for National LGBTQ Task Force, Mason Davis, Interim Executive Director of Transgender Europe, Tony Huang, Manager Director of Equality California, and Imani Rupert Gordon, who's the Executive Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here today for our Lavender Talks. Um, so pride, you know, con- continues throughout the year, but many pride celebrations did happen in the month of June. And so I thought we'd start off uh, by checking in with our leaders. What was pride like for you this year? How did you celebrate? How did you recognize? Um, you know, what what was the experience during this very challenging and unusual time? We'll start with Imani. Imani.
1: Thank you so much good afternoon everyone so pride for pride for us was um, you know not something that we would have expected certainly but In um, many ways that folks were still able to celebrate. So um, a lot of different virtual prides that we were able to participate in, which was really great. But I think more than that, I was really excited about the discussion that happened around pride, because for the first time on a larger scale, we saw people really being intentional about being intersectional and looking at racial justice in tandem while we're while we're having a pride experience and i think that is something that when we look at our lgbtq movement if it's not a racial justice movement or an economic justice movement or gender justice movement we're not going to to see everyone we're not everyone won't feel um, everyone won't f- feel like this pride is for them and so that was actually something i thought was a step in the right direction what i'm really excited about is looking at what pride looks like next year you know i'm I am hoping that it's possible to have um, more celebrations that's really important to a lot of people But I'd like to see the things that we've learned about being more inclusive and having people, some people for the very first time, thinking in a more intersectional way. I'd like to see that that carried on. Fausto. I have to agree with Imani. Um,
2: There's a lot of virtual prides for our staff. We mainly are split up in between um, New York City, Washington, D.C. um, And I'm actually down in Miami. So Um, There's a lot of prides that happened, particularly in South Florida, that went virtual, um, and we were actually able to collaborate with them, particularly be able to share our um, Queer the Census campaign with them, kind of putting out some PSAs on when folks are um, interacting with um, the particular prides, and also not only has the, the prides been virtual, but also This year, since we had um, the death of George Floyd and um, the Black Lives Matter movement um, to the forefront during Pride Month, like Imani touched earlier, it really brought a conversation of just how much intersections of being LGBTQ plus and racial identity go hand in hand and how some are more marginalized and different issues impact impact different LGBTQ folks. And I think that was a, a strong conversation that we're having and that it really impacted Pride Month in general and kind of our pride as we move forward to make sure that they are more intersectional and that we are having those tough conversations about, you know, racism, prejudice that occur with LGBTQ folks of color, um, you know, within the community.
0: Tony. I think
3: echoing what both Amani and Fausto said, you know, I think at the beginning of this year we did not imagine where we were going to be in June. You know, quality California is represented at about 15 prides throughout the state of California, all the way from San Francisco to small towns like Visalia and Essentro, um, in more underserved communities. But I think in the middle of the global pandemic, you know, as the, our nation is having some really intense and necessary conversations around race, you know, June for us was an opportunity for us to really highlight, you know, black and other folks of color within the queer community to highlight the great leadership that we have. Amani was a part of a number of our events, um, but we had, you know, an event at the end of June, called Solidarity and Pride, where we're able to highlight some great diversity within our community and have these tough conversations, you know, talking about things like, you know, affirmative action, and that's going to be a really big issue for California come November, having those, you know, intentional discussions with, you know, folks in the broader LGBTQ communities, as well as our allies. Um, you know, I think to Amani's point, you know, what does Pride look like next year for us? We want to continue to this conversation, hopefully in person. But, continue to center folks of color and making sure that they're leading and at the table um, so that, you know, we're building upon some of these, you know, moments that were tough and hard right now, but is, a, is an opportunity for us as a movement to move forward.
0: And Mason? What an odd
4: pride. What a weird 2020. I, I mean, I echo what my colleagues are, are sharing about this year being really different in some wonderful ways. For a long time, it has felt that pride has become a party with a lot of, A lot of great dances and corporate support and and that's been really uh, a big evolution over the last decades to go back to a pretty simple pride that could be accessible to anybody who had a computer that wasn't sponsored but was really generally a a do-it-yourself pride felt like a sense of community uh, and an intersectional real community that we don't often see so I, i think it was a really powerful pride this year and it was hard pride because it was hard to be physically distanced from so many people and to be able to, you know, not be able to come together in person, to not have that physical connection, uh, to not be able to give, you know, our, our fellow LGBTQ people and allies a, just a hug was really, uh, I really felt it, I will say, this pride. But I also loved seeing the, the homegrown uh, expressions of pride that reminded me why we got into this work and why, we, why I, for, at least for me, I, I've been working in this movement to begin with. It gives me a lot of hope, especially as we look at the, the intersections between the LGBTQI movement and all the other movements, especially the, the movement for Black Lives and against racism in this, in this nation right now. Those paths have to be uh, come together as we both move forward.
0: Thank you all. And uh, I think it's, you know, we can continue saying happy pride uh, and know that you know the work continues. Let's start with the positive. I mean, this summer, this June, this past June was a, a hist- historic one. What I mean by that, the uh, history was made. The Supreme Court had ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act does indeed protect gay, lesbian, bisexual and transgender folks from discrimination. And I think many of us continue to be surprised at the fact that you know, it was Justice Neil Gorsuch who drove the narrative that led to the decision. And, and uh, we could talk a little bit about that. I know in a previous program, Imani, we dro- you know, kind of dug deep into it while we celebrated. But is this a turning point for LGBTQ rights in America? We'll start with Tony. I mean, I think
3: it is something to be celebrated. I think, you know, uh, to Mason's point, it was an odd moment as, you know, it it was a big win for us um, uh, in the broader community having, you know, um, Justice Gorsuch join um, in the majority, you know, on this opinion. And now LGBTQ folks are protected in employment. But we know that there are a lot of other places in the public sphere that we still need to be protected on. Um, And we know that the court is, very fragile. Every time I get a newsletter about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I freak out. <laughs> and you know, until we're able to make a change within the White House and then the composition of the U.S. Senate, you know, our rights are are at stake. You know, it's not just LGBTQ rights, um, but it's you know, reproductive justice, immigration, um, a whole host of things that, you know, within the courts, knowing that you know this administration has packed, you know, all the lower courts with you know young right wing conservatives, you know that there's still a lot of work to be done um, as it pertains to the judicial system. you know, um one thing that you know we are focused on, you know coming into November is that all our efforts will be around the election because we are not going to be able to make any progress at the federal level until we take back the u s. Senate and the White House so that we can actually roll back some of the great harm that has been done over the past three, four years. So, you know, I would say, you know, the court case was a great win, you know, for us as a movement. You know, I think sitting here in California, you know, we are lucky to have a really great supermajority of pro-quality elected officials at the local and state level that we've continued to make positive change. But, you know, that is not the same across the nation, Um, you know, particularly in the South and the Midwest. um, You know, there's still a lot of work to be done across this nation. um, and until we have full comprehensive federal protections, um, you know, we're not going to stop.
2: I see it very optimistically, personally, as someone who lives in the state of Florida, I'm sure y'all have heard so many great stories about Florida, <laughs> but we've actually been fighting for LGBTQ non-discrimination protection on the state level for years, for years. And I know Florida isn't technically considered the South, but the state legislature definitely, you know, acts like it's part, pretty much part of the South. So the fact that we, can, we got a national ruling um, from the Supreme Court that could potentially really help out LGBTQ plus Floridians, since we really have not been able to get much progress on the state level here, I think that's huge. But what I think we also need to be working on is the Equality Act. Um, you know, there are some pieces of legislation, too, that I think would be more useful as well that would codify protections for everybody, regardless of where they're living, because like Tony mentioned earlier, there are other states like in the Midwest that have harder times trying to pass legislation um, that's, you know, that helps LGBTQ plus community on the local level or on the state level. And I think that if we have a national non-discrimination protections, it will definitely be able to help folks that probably, you know, it will take maybe even longer than a majority of other, you know, big cities to be able to have non-discrimination protection.
0: Imani, what are your thoughts? Turning point?
1: Uh, no, thanks so much. You know, honestly, I would, um, echo a lot of, of what Tony said. Um, you know, I I don't want to underscore this, though, and I think that we forget a lot of times. Um, I think a lot of folks believe that there are protections in place for LGBTQ folks, and that's actually not true. And so I, I also want to say that this represents something um, monumental for us, you know, whereas um, most people will work in their lifetime. That is true for most people. And now it's true that. With your that um, you can't be fired based on sexual orientation. We know this will this will very much impact economic stability for obviously for LGBTQ folks, but for folks of color, specifically for trans folks, and and this is going to be something that's that's really really important. And I don't want to underscore that because before this, in 28 states, folks could be fired for being LGBTQ. And so this isn't nothing. And so I want to make sure that we celebrate the the journey to our equality is long. And so this this actually represents something really big. And so I want to make sure that we take the time to celebrate that and also recognize that there is more that can be done here. You know, it's not this. The um, This is talking specifically about employment, but we also know that this is going to have huge impacts on things like on things like healthcare and housing. And so we're going to see this impact more than just uh, Title VII. So that's something that's really exciting. And that this is not everything. It's not even close to everything, because although this gives a very strong protection, we also know that this administration is going to make us fight for it every single time. And so whereas we would hope that uh, an administration would really listen to the Supreme Court and, you know, and that would be it, we're going to have to fight for this every single time and remembering that. Though we have the backing of the Supreme Court, which is which is monumental, going to court isn't always accessible to everyone, and we have to we have to recognize that um, this is a this is this is a a large victory, but it's not accessible for every single person. And so we want to make sure that as we move forward, that we're we're still fighting, we're still fighting, we're still finding new protections so that all of us can get to equality.
0: Thank you. And finally, Mason, And I know you've uh, expanded in your advocacy and activism and kind of, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. And when we say, you know, turning point for LGBTQ rights, sometimes and at times, most times, um, you know, the United States can be looked upon as a, as a leader. But I realize that what we do here can also impact influence what happens elsewhere. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, it's real. I mean, if I can, just to take a second around the Supreme Court decision, I just want to remind people, a lot of that energy and some of the initial decisions that helped lead to it came out of the Bay Area in California. A lot of the work of NCLR and Transgender Law Center were really critical to getting the cases up there and to making sure that they were the right cases to get a good decision. So we've, uh, here in the Bay Area, had a really important role in that, as have all of the legal advocates in our in our community working really hard over the last several years So I am probably one of the biggest champions for the SCOTUS decision um, in large part just because it it actually saying that trans people, um, that gender identity and discrimination against trans people is a form of sex discrimination should have implications much broader than employment at the end of the day. So that is a game changer without a doubt in many states. And we are not done. I've heard some people say, ah, oh, does that mean we're done as a movement? We get to close up shop, we can declare victory? And that answer is no. And if you're wondering that still today, you're probably not reading the news. We have still have a lot of work to do. And especially around public accommodations, access to places like restaurants or hotels and such uh, are still going to be very important for us to address through the Equality Act. So that is more important than ever. And you're right, what we do in the United States does have a big impact elsewhere. It used to have a a positive impact in many ways when it came to LGBTQ rights. That is not the case today. Um, The the truth is we are behind and the the model now, the message we are sending through the Trump administration, unfortunately, is that it's absolutely okay to undermine human rights in your country or in your, your political context. That LGBT people can be disposable Most specifically, that transgender people can be a threat and rolling back their protections and their rights is an okay thing to do and countries can do that without getting critiqued by the United States, which is very different than the situation uh, even four years ago. So uh, I see a chilling effect actually across the countries. We have seen anti-transgender and anti-LGBT legislation just in the last month or two come out of Russia, Poland, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Hungary, and much of this is related to a, a sense of permission from the Trump administration and anti-democracy efforts that are starting to use, uh, are continuing and increasingly using LGBT people as a fear tactic um, to um, to strengthen other political interests, and a lot of that stems back to our president. So I think we've got to be really careful in this moment as we are, unfortunately, in exporting not human rights, but uh, anti-LGBT sentiment, especially when it comes to religious exemptions and freedom, which um, you know I think we all have to be very thoughtful about. As Amani said, these rights are not taken for granted. We're going to have to fight on every, every level. And one thing we will be, have to be fighting, and we are seeing happening around the globe, is um, how do we square the rights of LGBT people with the rights of people who would say that they deserve to be anti-LGBT as part of their faith.
0: It's a good segue. And and part of the reason I I asked in this way, um, but it's a great segue into the next question, Tony, you'd brought up, you know, the importance of uh, elections. And we have a very big election coming up in the fall. And we start to ponder, you know, what do we do? what do What do we do now? What do we do next? You know, if the United States allows or continues on in this authoritarian type of leadership, the the fear is that that will also influence and impact you know other governments, especially weaker governments. Uh, Mason, to your point, in uh, what we're witnessing here, uh, growing the 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 increase of of more hate and uh, hate that impacts many many communities, and so you know changes in the U.S or whatever happens in the United States can be an indicator of what might happen in other countries. Um, We've seen in the past, a great example of that is marriage equality. And that didn't just take, you know, policy changes, but that also included uh, what we, what we were able to do by activating campaigns and making social change. But where I'm going with that is, although we've had a win from, you know, a Supreme court ruling this administration has constantly attacked the LGBTQ community and rolling back rights and, and rolling back rights during a time in which they've been also successful in dividing the entire country. What are your thoughts on how much it is that we do need to focus on this election and, and how important, you know, this, this upcoming election is? And I think, I think maybe we need to, you know, just be uh, very upfront and honest personally, uh, I I I have a huge fear. I have a huge fear of what's going to happen, you know, this fall. So let's hear from our leaders. Tony, we'll go back to you.
3: Sure. I mean, I, again, you know, that's that is our number one priority. You know, we are lucky is that we are, are sort of a multifaceted organization where we have a political action committee. At both the state and the federal level, where we can engage, you know, in the race for the White House and supporting congressional candidates um, in California and Nevada, where you know we are going to be mobilizing our members and all our allies uh, on behalf of that, because you know I think you know, living in a blue state like California, we know California is going to vote Democratic, but how can we leverage some of those resources where we can, you know, affect change in some neighboring states? Arizona is a great example, a U.S. Senate race that is going to be up for grabs. Um, How can we, you know, send volunteers to, you know, make calls, you know, text bank, canvas, um, so that we make sure that we turn out all of our allies and LGBTQ folks across the country, so that we sort of boot, this administration from the White House, because, you know, a lot has been done, um, not just to our community, but to all of our allies over the past few years. You know, I think, um, you know, they're trying to overturn the census now um, so that we don't count citizens. You know, all of it's only going to get worse in the next, you know, 90-something days, um, because they're going to sort of throw everything against us to make sure that they mobilize the right wing. And so how do we make sure we stand together and fight back, you know, in this election cycle? Fausto? The
2: yeah, the the selection cycle is very different, um, especially because we're working on the census simultaneously. You know, there's been a lot of setbacks with that the deadlines and numerators left and right. So, trying to balance those two things, like how Tony mentioned, now there's you know attacks on um, non citizens not being counted on the census and and like fear mongering to make sure folks who aren't citizens, aren't filling out the census. But yeah, you know, this all comes from an administration. You know, they're giving directives on how to handle the census amongst other government agencies. And we actually don't have a a political action committee, but we're determined to do a lot of our get out the vote work. Um, We are obviously prioritizing the safety of all all of our staff members and our volunteers and our members as well. So we definitely are going to be focusing on doing some um, um, phone banks, you know, things that are virtual to make sure folks are getting registered to vote, um, that they have a plan to vote, which is also really important just because we know how many different, you know, rules and regulations there is to get registered to vote, whether there's, ex- you know, you're allowed an excuse to vote by mail and the conversations that we're having around universal vote by mail, especially during a, a global pandemic. And then just, you know, we, are really focusing our work on returning citizens as well, Um, but uh, particularly right here in Florida, where we had an amendment for WIN that allowed folks who were previously incarcerated returning citizens to be able to get the right to vote. Then, unfortunately, the Florida um, legislature last year passed a piece of legislation that made it a lot harder. Now, um, returning citizens have to fully pay all their fines before they can get the right to vote, in, right now, it's in, in full litigation mode, and we had a plan on how to engage returning citizens because that's there's a lot of folks in Florida specifically who you know are getting the right to vote. Um, we want we want to make sure that they're voting, and now we're kind of falling in this cycle of, of litigation and, and court hearings about it. So yeah, you know, there's there's a lot that's going on to stop folks from you know voting <laughs> um, that might be beneficial to some folks rather than others, but it's really important to us that we're making focus Efforts for um, LGBTQ folks, folks of color, returning citizens, and the underserved communities to make sure that they are fill- not only getting out the vote but also filling out the census as well.
1: Imani, you know, honestly, I would echo a lot of what has already been said, um, but I think it is really important when we think about, uh, uh, you know, um, NCLR. We are a five hundred one c three organization, so I want to be um, really careful here, but I want to be, but I want to be thoughtful and say, you know. We are looking for LGBTQ equality, and we want that to include everyone. And our current administration has been very hostile to our community. And so thinking about when we are getting out to vote, to really think about who is going to be really – who is going to support getting our community to equality. And I think that is really something that we want to consider. That's really, really important. And then also making sure that folks are able to vote. You know, It's very, voter suppression is very, very real. And right now during um, a global pandemic is going to be something that we haven't seen before. And though I've seen things, I don't feel like I've seen nearly enough reminding folks that finding different ways to vote, to vote by mail, what it looks like, what the deadlines are, because these vary by state. This is something that's consistent at all. And so just making sure that everyone has the opportunity to vote is something that I think is also going to be really, really important during this time. And then also, you know, just wanting to say, we do know that our country does impact the rest of the world. We know that that's something, you know, I will say that I think that right now with sort of current handling of, of this Current pandemic, I don't know that I don't know that we are this beacon of hope to a lot of folks. So, so there's that. But I think so. I definitely think there is some room for improvement. Um, I don't think that um, that folks are looking to us in every way as this is the way to go. I think that in a lot of ways it looks like you know it looks like we're bringing in the rear, and I think in a um, to a lot of people. And so um, I think that's something to um, to consider as well.
4: Mason, I can't imagine a more important election than the one this year, other than maybe the one four years ago, but it didn't go quite the way I expected. There is so much at stake. I can't ever think of a time there's been more at stake as we go into a presidential. And it's not just about LGBTQ rights, though it is about LGBTQ rights. It's about racism. It's about sex and sexism. It is about migration. It is about who are we as a people. It is about democracy. It is about the rule of law we are just in a such a, a such an important moment and so and we know there are all these forces that realize how important it is and are going to do everything they can to keep people from casting a fair ballot especially in the middle of covid so i believe we have to be absolutely vigilant do everything that we can to help people understand what's at stake because there's so much at stake and how to support each other in getting to the polls and making sure that we're counted I'll also note if I can, there are many state level races that are incredibly important as well. And so I don't want those to get lost. Um, One of the projects I've been involved in is called the Q Trust that has been identifying and vetting LGBTQ supportive candidates in key swing states to try to get them resource and help stabilize that. So if people are interested in that, there's some resources out there. Because uh, we've got to be looking both both up the ballot and down the ballot to make sure that we have the kind of protections that our people need. And to be honest, that we protect democracy in the United
0: States. Thank you so much. And uh, also another great segue to our audience. Thank you, audience, for writing in your comments and your questions. Keep them coming and we'll get them to our leaders uh, there. This is for anyone who wants to answer it and uh, definitely want to um Respect you know, the fact that you're all you're working. Some of you for 501c3. So anyone who wants to answer this, what do you think of Joe Biden's commitment to LGBTQ rights, and who should he pick as his VP?
3: For quality California, we were had the ability to um, get questionnaires um, and interview many of the leading Democratic candidates, um, and we were impressed for the first time in history that we had a plethora of really outstanding Democratic candidates that were, you know, had really comprehensive platforms on LGBTQ rights. And Vice President Biden has a true long-time track record, you know, and we are really excited to support him um, in this candidacy. You know, he has a really great staff. You know, we, we love Reggie, um, his LGBTQ constituency director, and are really excited about what, you know, when they win, the folks that they'll surround themselves with, you know, to making sure that we have adequate representation within administration. We don't have any uh, ideas about the vice presidential pick. We know there are at least two great uh, Californians on the shortlist, but, you know, there are a lot of great candidates that are out there that he's considering and really excited about the announcement that'll come out next week.
4: I think Karen Bass from LA would be an amazing to see a community organizer who has done so much work, especially on anti black and anti brown racism. Uh, in an incredibly progressive way, uh, just like she walks her talk, and that gets me really excited. So I'm going to be happy with it, whoever's picked, but uh, I think we should be really proud that we've got really good people uh, coming out of politics in the state.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, that's the one thing that's exciting, at least for myself as well as a voter, is just you know getting to that point where we'll find out who Joe Biden's pick for VP is, and hopefully it will be a, a woman, I don't know. That's, that would be very exciting. Another question from our audience here. What does it mean to you to be recognized as a next generation leader in the LGBTQ community? Fausto, why don't we start with you? To me, it means
2: a lot. I am actually 25 years old. So I have been part of the movement even before I was... Like professionally hired as working for an organization. So, to me personally, it's been a a big dream to actually be able to get to this part of my life um, so early on because that is what I've been working towards literally since high school. (laughs) So, um, to be able to do the work that I've dreamed of doing and really put all of my effort in college, doing internships, unpaid, left and right, (laughs) you know, trying to do all this policy work to be able to help other LGBTQ folks really be themselves and really grow into a, a strong belief system, understanding understanding how nonprofit organizations work um, more intrinsically, more internally, and, and, and really build coalition and partners has really been a, an amazing moment for me. And to be acknowledged as LGBTQ leader is um, really an honor just because I'm so early on in my career. But, um, you know, working with, um, you know, standing... Side by side by these other three legends is also an honor. So um, I I really appreciate that, and I really hope to you know build my career up um, and be able to be part of the movement until you know until we get full equality.
1: Money. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'll say, you know, I think my experience is a little bit different. I'm not young in my career. And this is, you know, I'm the new executive director here, but I've been an executive director before um, and done different things in the movement. I will say that I am, you know, I am leading an organization that was led by an icon, that someone who is, uh, has been a mentor to me. So, um, you know, when I think about being next generation, it's because, you know, I'm following, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. So, um, you know, obviously, It's uh, an incredible honor and it's incredible responsibility. I will say that when I think about this, you know, titles are funny things. (laughs) Um, But when I think about uh, when I think about access, when I think about power, um, I try to think about it as a picture. You know, uh, because in this moment, this is something that saying to me that I'm a next generation um, leader, that there's something that I have. And I think about that as someone who has a pitcher. But just because I'm the person that has the pitcher doesn't mean that we can't all have a drink. You know, we are all sitting here with our cups out and ready to be part of this movement. And I want my leadership to be part of making it possible so that we can see leadership in a lot of different ways and a lot of different people And so when I think about I get to stand on the shoulders of giants I get to I get to I've gotten to learn from folks I've gotten to see amazing things done and I want you know in the folks that I get to work with, I want to be able to help open doors. I want to be help. I want to, I want to help. like as a young person, I want to help you in your career. I want to do, I want to, I want to see you do amazing things. You're going to be, you know, you'll be doing this work far longer than I am. And I want to make sure that if there are ways that I can help you, that I am. And I want that to be the case for everyone. It doesn't mean, you know, if I'm the person with the, with the picture. there's no reason that we can't all share in a drink. And so I guess that's what, that's how I would, I would think about it. But, you know, certainly an honor to be on a panel with you all and to um, be one of the next generation leaders.
0: Let's, uh we'll come back to our audience questions, by the way. So keep them coming. Uh, we definitely appreciate them and comments, positive ones. We'll, we we love our leaders. Thank you so much for the work that you do. So this summer, you know, people from around the world came out and protested against racial injustice and police brutality And our community. The LGBTQI community has been the forefront of the equal rights fight and, and of course, you know, this conversation and this fight. So how do you see us lead in this and make some actual change for our entire community? And uh, I'll just leave that to the the group here. Uh, Whoever wants to take this question, please jump in.
3: I can jump in. Um, This, you know, for us, as this was all happening, we, you know, came together as a staff and a board and wanted to reflect and Ask ourselves, how do we react in these times? I would say, you know, as an organization, you know, a number of years ago, we had adopted a new intersectional mission statement. And in terms of our programming, you know, really looking at things with the racial equity lens. But, you know, we wanted to see how can we as an LGBTQ, ally, LGBTQ community be better allies to the racial justice movement. So in response, you know, we ch- are championing a number of bills, you know, that are put forth by the California Legislative Black Caucus. Um, I know we, we work with NCLR to help wrangle some votes around the affirmative action uh, bill that is now a ballot measure here in California. But pushing on a whole number of issues, whether it be banning, you know, cash bail. What are you know the things that we can leverage our relationships and our community mobilization? to make sure that we stand up for all members of our community, particularly our black and brown members of our community who, you know, in the past have not felt like they've been heard um, from our leaders and how do we make sure that they are at the forefront leading um, in this fight, not just this year, not just in this movement, but for the years and decades to come.
0: Anyone want to add to Tony?
4: Can I, I'll just add, I think our, a lot of our queer organizations have a lot of work to do both internally and programmatically and that we, um, we have a, a really strong infrastructure in many ways around the country, whether you're looking at LGBT community centers or state equality groups, issue-based groups, identity-based groups. And yet many of the organizations that have had the most influence and power generally look like the people who have influence and power in, the, in this country. And it is time, it's well past time, but for our organizations to really think about Fully who are LGBTQ people in all of our complexities and to make sure that our work and the way we work reflect that. And we're a long ways from that uh, still in a number of organizations. Um, I remember when I first um, became an executive director, um, oftentimes I would be the only transgender person in the room of all non-trans executive directors. Many times at most there'd be one or two people of color in those rooms. That is changing. Uh, I've seen that change in the last decade, but not not enough. And and not, it's not just who's in charge of organization. It's really looking at every level of organizations of how we raise money, how do we spend money, who gets heard when we prioritize programs and bills, um, as well as then what is the actual work we're doing out there in the world, who we partner with. Um, and I just I really want to encourage all of our organizations and our organizational leaders and boards to really look critically at themselves and think about what they what can they do in this moment uh, to really step it up. It's time.
1: Hey, anyone else money? Earlier I said that some people are thinking about this really for the first time about how um, an LGBTQ identity intersects with uh, with racial justice. Um, but Some of us, um, this is not the first time that we thought about it. Um, I, you know, my, my career has been in, um, working with the LGBTQ community, but I only have my experience as being a queer woman and also being a black woman. And so racial justice and, um, LGBTQ equality are not separate to me. They're not different. And so, um, and that is the, that is how NTLR has always looked at our, um, at our movement. You know, NTLR was created because the needs of lesbians weren't being addressed by the larger, um, by the larger movement. And so uh, we were able to find a way to, uh, to do some work that actually benefits everyone from the, for, from the movement. And that work continues to still to still uh, serve everyone, and so our work now is really trying to make sure that everyone's including c- included and in finding more ways to include uh, more folks. And so um, that's the the history of NCLR. That's something that's that's uh, that's written in our in our DNA. And so um, you know we can't separate these things if we want to actually be at equality. What we're going to do is see. see this happen intersectionally, but see it happen in an authentic way. And that's something that I'm really excited about seeing because right now, you know, we have people celebrating Juneteenth for the first time. um, When before that, you know, many people had no idea what that was, but what does this look like next year? Um, Are you going to celebrate Juneteenth next year? Does everyone get the day off on, on Juneteenth next year? Is that something that happens or was that something that was performative? Was that something that we weren't actually trying to make, make a change, you know, and you know, I I told my team that when we had Juneteenth off, actually, exp- I, I told a story about what Juneteenth meant to me and what it meant for me as a young person when my mother told me what it was. And when I went to school and my teacher told me that that wasn't a thing and that Juneteenth wasn't even a day, that that's not how days work. And so for many of us, our, we have an opportunity right now to include more folks. And that was a way that we included more folks. And that's that's a way that was authentic to us. Um, and that's why people have Juneteenth off at um, NCLR and why they will continue to have Juneteenth off. And I hope that when we are moving forward, that more folks are taking intentional moves to make a difference. Because, you know, I want to see more, I want to see more folks of color. I want to see more trans folks. I want to see more folks with, that, that aren't in positions of power. I want to see more people in positions of power. But I don't want to do that at the expense of them, because remember that our reputations aren't as flexible as our our white, um, straight, cis counterparts. And so we have to make sure that when we put folks in positions of leadership, that they are ready for those positions and that we are supporting them in those positions. That is incredibly important. And so while all of this happens, well, all of this is changing, which I'm so excited about. I want to make sure that it's happening in an authentic way, that we're not just taking one person and saying, parading this person around and saying, "Hey, this is change right here." Because that's not that's not change. That's um, we need to have actual structural institutional change, not um, not change for one person. That's individual comfort and that's different than institutional change. So I want to make sure that when we're making these decisions next year that these are things that are they're built into our systems, that that these are that we're having these legitimate conversations about how we pay people that, that when, when folks have to negotiate their salaries, that that always hurts the same people because some people don't know how to negotiate their salaries. And so there are barriers that we are able to take away by just saying, this is what the position pays. If you get the position, you get this, you, you get this paycheck. If, if you don't get the, if you are not good enough for this paycheck, you're not good enough for the position and taking away these barriers so that we can fully, fully, fully support everyone in our community.
0: Thank you so much for that money. Yeah, that's right, Mason. If we, if we could, we could all clap right now. <laughs> and yeah, which leads me to the next question. You know, when we say Black Lives Matter, we also, and in the LGBTQ community and everyone else here, should understand that we also mean Black Trans Lives Matter, and Black Trans women and women of color are being murdered at an alarming rate year after year. It's an LGBTQI issue. It's not just a trans issue Uh, we've got to come together as a community and figure this out. What do we do to, to, to stop this, to prevent, uh, you know, the, the murders Um, that, and, and that was a a question where although we saw the world come together to denounce, you know, the, the killing of George Floyd uh, police brutality, we also need to address the fact that we're losing black trans women
2: I think um, something that's really important. I was going to mention the previous question was um, highlighting the voices of those that fit within the intersections um, and struggles that we're, you know, talking about. Like me personally, I'm not black, so it's important that as an organization and also as a community, we're we're um, highlighting the voices um, and the representation of folks who are black and trans, particularly black trans women, and we are allowing them to speak about their experience and talk about how they think in their local communities, what can be done to better and make sure, um, you know, that there's progress because there's too much, too much issues and murder, especially in the state of Florida every year, there's always black trans women who are unfortunately being murdered. And it's like, it's important that we're not telling folks like, Hey, this is the best solution for you. It's if we're, you know, asking the local communities, um, the folks there to tell us, how can we help you? How can we support you? What would be the best way? Because not all communities are exactly the same. Um, there's geographical barriers, socioeconomic barriers. It's important that we allow the trans community, particularly those who are Black and trans and Black trans women, to be at the forefront of this movement and us as an organization and as a community be there to actually support the efforts that they're asking us to support, whether it's um, economic, political, um, and whether there, there's you know police accountability, Um, And, you know, a huge, huge different list of demands that could happen, but it's important that we really are highlighting and listening to the particular folks in that local area, making sure that we're supporting them on how to best, um, you know, be able to uplift them and stop these horrendous murders, because it keeps happening. And it seems like we're unfortunately leaving them behind as an LGBTQ community, as organizations, kind of how Mason Um, touched on earlier, you know, we got to also have a lot of um, systemic and change even within organizations, making sure that we are providing for those most marginalized communities in the LGBTQ community, because if we're all fighting for LGBTQ plus liberation and equality, we got to make sure that we are working for the most marginalized um, within the community.
0: Anyone want to add to Fausto?
4: I would just add, uh, this is, it really is an epidemic. And it has been for years, but it, the more visible transgender people are, the more violence we're experiencing. Especially trans people who are most vulnerable um, in the United States. That's specifically uh, black trans women, um, black Latin Latinx women, uh, as well as sex workers, uh, who you know many trans people uh, need to rely on that in order to make a living. Um, and you, you bring those any combination of that, we are seeing a big issue in the United States. But it's not just the U.S. At Transgender Europe, we run an international program called the Trans Murder Monitoring Project. And so we have staff that are tracking all of these incidents every year. A vast majority are trans women and trans women of color and at the intersection as well of economic uh, vulnerability. And at this LGBT movement, we have to stop seeing somehow these uh, women, especially that are being killed, as somehow other these are not people who are other. These are our sisters. These are our brothers. These are people who are advocating like heck for LGBT equality in their in their countries, in their cities and states in many ways. It, oftentimes they're taking care of other people. This is our community. This is our community. Our community is being killed and typically murdered with very little support uh, or investigation from the police. Um, and it, as, as long as we see this as something other that's over there with people who aren't part of us, then that's part of the problem. Trans, especially black trans women in the U.S. and in many countries, are the canary in the coal mine and are experiencing the severe brunt of the anti-LGBT movement that exists um, or energy, right? The, this hatred that we're seeing that's coming up in so many different places. Um, no matter, it, it, and much of that is, ends up being linked back to, like, the marriage campaigns, it's not, they're not, these are not disposable people. They are us. And so I, I would really urge all of our community organizations to really think about what can they do more around anti-violence and what can we do within the LGBT community for people to realize that trans folk are part of you. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm a gay man and a trans man. Um, that's true. Most of us live that intersectionality. Um, and we've got to find a way to be able to make sure that the most vulnerable are protected. That's not happening today.
0: Anyone else?
1: You know, I would, um, I would just add. I think it's really important that we are. Um, that we are asking questions, we're asking questions, we're truly listening to the answers and being willing to change, asking the people that are from the most impacted uh, communities. Like, if we at, we need to ask Black trans women and uh, trans women and trans women of color what it is they need, and we need to be willing to change our systems and institutions and give it to them. Like, that's what, that is what we need to do. Um, but then we also need to hold space for the fact that we have not done this right in so many in so many ways. So there is a better than even chance that the questions that some folks would think to ask are not the questions that should be asked. So remember that when we're thinking about where the power exists, To leave space so that folks can tell you what they need. It's not just answering, um, it's not creating the framework that people can fit in, but allowing folks to fit the framework because, or allowing folks to create this this framework, the most impacted people to create this framework. Um, That's going to be really important um, because our systems aren't working in so many ways. And then also, whenever we are looking at something that is disproportionately and negatively impacting any part of our community, then that's a key that there's something else at play. And so Thinking about like what it looks like, you know, when we're looking at sex work and the importance of decriminalizing sex work because we know that this is impacting transgender folks and transgender women of color um, more than our more than um, any other part of the LGB community. And so we want to make sure that if that if this is impacting if um, criminalization is impacting this community more, then we know that there's something else at play. And it's really easy to, to make that connection. You know, we talked earlier about um, economic resources and how. And, you know, we know that over 80 percent of trans people experience uh, some sort of workplace discrimination. And so when we're thinking about economic stability, it's not hard to understand um, why that's difficult. And so really being thoughtful about this and then really also thinking about who, where does accountability lie? Where does safety lie? You know, um, thinking about in the death of, um, of, of trans folks, Do we see these murders being or or, like, do people find the the murderers or is that something, you know, very often we see something happen just kind of um, goes away and that folks are actually misgendered in death, which is, I mean, of the most disrespectful things that can happen. And so just the accountability, who is supposed to keep us safe? You know, it's it's understandable that that there is an uprising that people don't Trust who is supposed to keep us safe because when given an opportunity, there's so many ways that these institutions aren't created and these people aren't keeping us safe and so thinking about all of those things um are, are it's it's something that we have to do
0: thank you thank you so much for that uh, let's go back to our audience questions uh We have a an audience member here, actually, Lisa Kastner, who wants to ask Mason. A question, and we, we kind of alluded to it that you are taking on a, another role, which means leaving the country entirely. <laughs> um, you're headed to Europe. Uh, how do attitudes and laws toward trans people differ from here uh, in the United States?
4: That's a, it's a great question. It's not an easy one, though, because Europe is so diverse in and of itself, actually, as far as the the many countries that have their own cultures around gender. Um, so we do work in Europe as well as uh, Central Asia. So the, the work, especially in Central Asia, is you know, quite different than the work in France, for example, in Kazakhstan and France have very different perspectives on these questions. Um, I will say in general, the um, European Union, Council of Europe in many ways were founded on uh, many human rights um, uh, kind of fundamentals that inform um, what member states of the EU should be doing or how they should be thinking about LGBT issues. And it gives us some um, some ability to really advocate in individual contexts to help improve the situation um, because of the support of the EC um, and in also UN mechanisms. Because in other parts of the world, people actually pay attention to what the UN says, which is very different here. So the it means that many of the ways that we think about rights there is much more a human rights frame than a civil rights frame. Um, and the, many of the big issues are around legal gender recognition, making sure that trans people can be uh, recognized in their new name and gender or their accurate name and gender uh, without having to be sterilized, without having to get divorced, um, without having to go through a series of mental health examinations and deemed mentally ill. In order to be themselves, Um, and that has been the um, that's been an increasing standard is to be able for people to be able to be identify as transgender, have healthcare, have the legal documentations they need, uh, simply by saying this is who I am. And so um, that is we are starting to see more of that um, come to be in a way that is not we're not there in the United States, but we also have some countries that have uh, where people do have to literally be sterilized and divorced. Uh, before na- they can change their name. Um, and, uh, and countries like Hungary that are now uh, making it illegal are basically rolling back the ability of trans people to be legally recognized. So it's very complicated, and right now it is, uh, it is a big fight. Um, it's one of the reasons um, I'm, I'm eager to try to uh, help out there with the, the team and uh, a large network of trans groups um, and allied groups on the ground trying to, to survive both survive the, the pandemic, survive this moment in our political uh, history, and, um, and to make sure their individual members and rights um, are able to survive the next couple of years. So it's, it's quite different in many ways, but uh, at the end of the day, our opposition is the same. And I, I think it's important for us to remember that, that many of the, the groups like ADF and the groups that are behind a lot of the worst of the anti-LGBT efforts in the United States have exported that elsewhere, and we are dealing with the same type of people and oftentimes connected groups um, in other parts of the world. Uh, much of it stemming from the United States.
0: Well, good luck, and we're we're so excited for you, and we're lucky that you know we've got a, a an advocate, and activist, a champion out there, bridging and connecting us um, globally. So this will this will be great. Uh, we got about six minutes left, and I want to make sure that all four of you are able to answer the last question. Um, so this question will be for Tony, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think we do need to address the fact that the pandemic has affected us uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. And um, but how has it affected, you know, our organizations, our leaders and how we mobilize, how we organize um, Equality California is involved with so many campaigns and you know, different intersections of the issues that affect us? We'll have Tony take this question.
3: Sure. Um, you know, I think it's been a challenging past few months um, you know, really shifting the way we do our programming, I think. Like Fausto, you know, equality California was really involved, um and is still involved in our census work. Um, you know, we had the, right before the pandemic broke, you know, we had 20 canvassers ready to start canvassing door to door throughout, you know, LA County and obviously that did not happen. You know, but our program folks are really uh we were grateful for them that they were able to adapt quickly. You know, we turned it to text banks and phone banks, you know, doing a number of virtual events. Um, You know, I think as it relates to COVID, you know, one thing that we, you know, we had some really good news this week where, you know, we were able to work with our colleague organizations and Senator Scott Wiener in San Francisco, um, really pushing for um, the California department of health to mandate um, that all of the testing, um, throughout the state of California for COVID now will, um, ask for sexual orientation and gender identity information. We have no idea if COVID is disproportionately impacting our community. We know the disproportionate impacts on communities of color. Um, and we know that LGBTQ folks are more likely to be frontline workers, work in the gig economy, have underlying health conditions. But our government, uh, had not been asking these questions, you know, even though millions and millions of tests were done and where, you know, four months into this pandemic. Um, but, you know, we are grateful that governor Newsom and his administration, um, you know, took these steps and now are mandating that. Um, but you know, it's challenging, you know, I would say our organization and many others, you know, across the nation are dealing with some pretty strong financial challenges. You know, um, you know, folks are, a number of folks are unemployed. Folks have been, you know, organizations that need to furlough it or laid off staff, but, you know, it's a challenge. Um, we are rolling with the punches. You know, I think I think to what folks were saying earlier. You know, vote by mail is a new thing for many folks, um, especially outside of California. Um, you know, we have a, a program in Nevada called Service State Equality, where it was the first time that Nevada did vote by mail voting, and that was a struggle to educate folks about what that meant in the primary. And we know that we're going to have to hammer that in. From you know going to the general not just you know um in the blue states but all across the country to making sure that the queer and allied communities really turn out because like mason said this is the most consequential election of of my lifetime and um and you know we're gonna have to make sure that we get you know make those ballots count
0: thank you and now for the last question and it's a quick answer from each of you so about 30 seconds or so or a minute or less um, and that is, you know, what, what do you want to leave our community members with as we head into the second half of 2020? Um, and uh, Some last thoughts and so, some words of hope. We'll start with Fausto.
2: I definitely say, uh, please make sure that you fill out your census. <laughs> um, you can definitely do it easy, easily online, uh, my2020census.gov. Um, And also, please um, make a plan to vote. Um, You know, we're talking about the consequences of and safety of folks and making sure that we are actually getting out the vote. So, um, you know, how we hit on earlier, there is so many different um, deadlines, processes on how to get a mail, mail by vote ballot. Um, you know, um, deadlines. You know, if, you know, change party affiliation. There's just so many things. So I would definitely say, not only fill out your census, but please, please make a plan to vote um, and make sure that you are voting um, and getting all your other peers and everyone else to vote.
0: Mason,
4: let's protect the health of our community in the next several months. Um, I think about that. One is just even personal and sexual health um, to the fellow gay men out there. You know, and everybody. Uh, all LGBT and straight folks as well. The lack of intimacy can be hard in this period of time. And yet, please keep yourself healthy, wear a mask, be thoughtful about how you're connecting with people. Um, I know we, you know, many of us want to go back and be with each other. Many of us want to connect with friends. Many of us are feeling the lack of physical intimacy. Um, my hope is that we're all here in the next couple of years to be able to celebrate when there's finally a back vaccine and things are safer. Um, but I, I really worry that um, we could lose a lot of members of our community in the next year. So please, to try to keep each other safe. Um, and two, let's keep our organization safe. Um, I have to be, admit, almost every donation I would usually give to a nonprofit this year has gone to a political candidate. Um, I have never given as much politically, but I know our organizations are struggling. My organization is struggling um, as foundations have moved money away from LGBT organizations to other issues, um, especially in light of COVID. It's really important if, when we come out of this that we have strong institutions, we have strong leaders, we have a strong and healthy people. So um, please do what you can to continue to support each other and our organizations. We need we need all of us.
0: Tony.
3: I think you know a lot of folks are wondering how can I get involved? How can I help? You know, in light of everything that's going on, and I would just say just get out there and do it. You know, reach out to you know local organizations like the task force, like NCLR. Um, get involved. You know, reach out to you know your local campaigns. Mason, you know, said it. Uh, a while back, you know, it's not just the White House. You know, there are really great candidates up and down the ballot. You know, if you care about police brutality and criminal justice reform, you know, there are a really a number of really great district attorney races that are happening. There's one in LA that's gonna be a blockbuster race. So figure out where you can make a difference in and just get out there and volunteer. You know, a number of you know we're all just sitting at home for the <laughs> for most of it, right? So, you know, if you can take that time and harness that into some actionable change. Because, you know, think about when we wake up on November 4th, you know, how much of a difference that can make, where we will have some normalcy and some decency um, that we can protect um, all members of our community. Um, You know, we're just under 100 days out. And if we can just harness that energy and that excitement and that anger um, into some actionable change, that will really make a difference for everybody.
0: And last but not least, Imani.
1: Thanks so much. You know, every day I go to work and I'm trying to be part of creating a world that I haven't seen before. And right now we are watching what happens when our imaginations, our our political imaginations are bigger than than what someone told us was possible. And we're seeing people with that have You know, like some of the movements we're seeing right now are things that um, this this didn't just come up yesterday. You know, we're seeing there's um, folks have written about this. Folks have talked about this Uh, for a very long time. People have talked about a different way of keeping our folks safe. And so I would remind folks that um, when we are trying to get to equality, to remember that we don't need the infighting. There has always taken, our, our civil rights trajectory has been made up of all kinds, and it's all of us pushing to get further. And so even if there's something that's not quite your cup of tea, maybe it's too progressive for you, maybe you just don't think that it's it's strategic, remember that it's taken all types, it's taken all of us to get there. And so this is good for all of us, pushing, pushing us to be better so that we're including more people is what we're trying to do. And so I would say that this is a very exciting time.
0: I love that. I love that. In the fight for equality, you do not need to be invited. Come on and join us. Let's do something right now. Support the work of all of these incredible leaders, the National Center for Lesbian Rights, National LGBTQ Task Force, Equality California and Transgender Europe. I want to thank Imani, Fausto, Tony and Mason for being here with us, our wonderful panelists and our our leaders again. Um, Thank you so much for fighting for our community. And thank you to all of you who've joined us here for Lavender Talks in partnership with San Francisco Pride. We have a surprise. This is not the last one. We'll continue throughout the year. You heard that, uh, you know, the, the fight continues, pride continues, and we all need each other. I'm Michelle Miao. I've got a program here at the Commonwealth Club, the longest and oldest running public affairs forum in the country for a full schedule of our programs coming up. Head to CommonwealthClub.org slash MMS. You don't want to miss the next one coming up. It's with award-winning journalist Maria Ressa, who's just been charged with cyber libel. What is that? Well, whatever happens to Maria is a threat to democracy and to journalism, so make sure you join us. We'll see you next time, my friends.